You are listening to the Impact Lenders Podcast, the podcast for people and institutions using lending for good. Welcome to the show. Hello and welcome to the Impact Lenders Podcast. This is your host, Peter Schaefing. On today's episode, we take the show on the road to the 2018 National Charter School Conference in Austin, Texas, to talk to some of the leading lenders in the charter school lending sector. Foundations and community development financial institutions play a crucial role supporting charter schools, which use foundation and CDFI loans to finance their facilities, cover working capital needs, and fund startup costs. Today's show will bring together interviews with four charter school lenders I had the privilege of speaking with at the conference. The lineup includes Joe Palazzolo of New Jersey Community Capital, Sajin Phillip of Low Income Investment Fund, LIF, and Khalif Davis and Molly Mello of Reinvestment Fund. You can read more about each of them and find links to their institution's websites at www.impactlenderspodcast.com, but suffice it to say that each of them is a leader in the charter school lending space. Their institutions lend to charter schools in states across the country using financing mechanisms like New Marcus Tax Credits, CDFI Bond Guarantee Funds, U.S. Department of Education Charter School Credit Enhancement Grants, and traditional loan funds. First, I asked each of them to talk about the most important trend in the charter school world today. We got some great answers that lead to a lot of hope and excitement for the industry. First up, here's Molly Mello from Reinvestment Fund. Maybe it's just um, impacted by some of the sessions I've been sitting in, but I feel like there's been a lot more talk about the social-emotional learning of students um, when it, for all students, and I, I don't recall having that much discussion on that in previous conferences. Like, in past years, I feel like there was so much talk about academic results and, you know, what is a high-quality school, and it seems like people are stepping back a little bit to think about the whole child and... Um, every child, you know, having equity be part of that discussion too. But um, yeah, again, maybe it's because I've just left a couple sessions that were really deep on that, but I don't remember seeing so much of that in the sessions and having pretty thoughtful conversations with a lot of different stakeholders from lenders and authorizers, schools, um, really thinking about what are other outcomes to strive for and what supports to provide all students when it comes to social and emotional learning because without that you don't get the academic piece Um, and the social and emotional support of teachers like how that um, how that translates to all the people in the building. Molly's colleague at Reinvestment Fund, Khalif Davis had this to say. I don't know if I can like pinpoint an important trend um, like a single most important trend, but there's a couple of trends I'm seeing in the, the charter industry. Okay. Um, one is the transition from um, the focus on you know the achievement gap um, and you know eliminating the disparity there to um, eliminating the opportunity gap um, among black and brown youth, you know their white peers. And so that comes with a whole host of you know racial consciousness, diversity among you know, staff, uh, leadership, uh, the school itself, providing wraparound services, and just new models to kind of combat uh, generational poverty. I think that's a really, really important trend. Have you seen anyone right have success doing that, or is it just more of a focus now? Yeah, yeah. Um, so a couple of schools are, you know, moving towards that. There's one school actually in New Orleans called Rooted School. The, I guess, proposition is that by the end of the um, high school tenure, students will have a job offer that's, you know, like a tech job or something like that, that um, will combat 
you know, generational poverty that's going on in that community. So the school leader is basically saying high, the, the students don't have enough time to go through college and, you know, then come back and then support their families and whatnot. So after high school, they should have that opportunity. So they're gearing up for that. This concept of the opportunity gap is definitely a topic that is getting more attention in the industry. So the the basic idea here is that the achievement gap, and that's the gap in test scores between white and Asian students and their black and Hispanic counterparts, that that's fueled by disparities and opportunities that begin from the moment a black or Hispanic child is born into a certain zip code or a certain level of poverty. The point is we need to look at the factors creating the achievement gap rather than the achievement gap itself as the problem. And, and this, in part, points back to Molly's comment on all the discussions around social and emotional learning. Disadvantaged students might disproportionately need schools that address their emotional and, and social needs in different ways than, than schools uh, that serve their counterparts. And that's the kind of thing that needs to be addressed in addition to a focus on test scores. If you'd like to read more about this, there's links to a discussion on this and to the Rooted Schools website at impactlanderspodcast.com. Our next two contributors focus more on the operational side of charter schools. Joe Palazzolo of NJCC is seeing more growth in mom-and-pop charter schools. I think an important trend in charter schools is organic growth of local and independent charter schools, not necessarily through national networks, not through even regional networks, but the creation of local, community-driven, organic growth. So... When you, have a, when you have a charter school that is community-driven and is formed by folks in the community, you may start at 100 students. To, I mean, you see this in your work, 200 students, 200 mm-hmm. students. And then you might grow to three or 400 students over a number of years. Having those schools find out whether or not it's right for them to grow to a middle school, maybe to grow up to a high school or grow down to a middle school. Schools being able to figure that out and come to that conclusion is something that I think is going to be big, and it's going to be big across the country because while the the large networks do phenomenal work, uh, they each started small. And I think that there's just such such tremendous work being done at the local level that it will naturally have to evolve to, to growth. The other side of that, which there's a session on this here uh, at the conference, is perhaps charter schools don't necessarily have to grow and expand locally, but help the local districts take on some of the characteristics of the charter school that make them successful. So finding the ways to take what is successful and expand that success, I think is pretty exciting. I really believe in that. And I think that's a place that the charter industry has fallen short in part because of the contention, mm-hmm. but that would, uh, I think that was one of the big aims of the movement originally. Yep. Interesting. I think Albert Shanker would agree with you. Sajin Philip of Lyft is going to lead us into our second question with his response. So first, he weighs in on his thoughts on the biggest trend in the charter school market, and he rolls right into question two, which was, what is the biggest risk you see in the market today? The biggest trend that I'm seeing is a lot more capital coming into the market in a much more aggressive way than I've ever seen before. In one example of that, but there's lots more examples, is you know the bond market. We've seen bond markets getting into earlier state uh, earlier stage and construction transactions, and uh, those are things that they did not do in the past. Um, we've seen this um, also with uh, Walton infusing uh, a significant amount of money through Charter Impact Fund and uh, FIF with Bank of America and Civic. Uh, I think that's been really positive and exciting. 
what that means for CDFIs, I think is we're going to need to think more creatively about what the real gaps are and um, where, we're, where we need to fit in. I do think there are still gaps around things like equity with earlier start charter schools, with uh, startup charter schools, um, emerging markets that don't have a strong charter market yet. So I do think there's still a need and, um, for CDFIs, uh, but it's changing significantly. Uh, so that's one big trend. On the same note, one of the biggest risks I see is that there's a lot of money coming into the market. Um, and that's scary. I mean, sometimes you see it and you're, you're thinking, is this a bubble or is it serving a need? Or um, So it, those questions arise. I don't know what the answers are, but there, there's a lot of money there. And in certain places, it's, it feels like too much. But uh, I think, you know, time will tell. Um, you say too much, do you mean it's flowing towards risk, like really risky transactions? Or it's... I think there's, um, there's a chase to the bottom in terms of maybe lending credit or you know, things like that. Uh, I think so much is flowing towards opportunities that people are getting a little bit more lenient with what would be normal credit practices. I think that's just starting to happen. And again, I, I don't know if this is an issue or not. Uh, I think time will tell, but it's just something I'm noticing and, and thinking a lot about as we're kind of looking at some of our markets. So I think this is partly a sign of the charter sector getting more mature, this tendency to be lending into deals that might seem a little more risky. Um, I think because the industry has been around for a, a while now, people are better educated on the risks they're taking. Uh, so they can get comfortable with the risk in a way that they might not have been able to 10 or 15 years ago. But Sajin, overall, I think he's absolutely right. Some startup schools need nothing more than a relatively low-cost, leased facility, and creating a market that allows them to buy a facility right away really could be a problem. Um, I can say in our work, I definitely see younger schools getting financed more than ever before. Um, But in most cases, I do chalk it up to schools that are better equipped to succeed right away, you know, we have a market now where people who have worked at charter schools for many years previously are, are going out to start their own. You know, so it's, it's a little bit of a more mature market with more seasoned operators, even in the new schools. But nonetheless, really, this is a trend to, to look at because especially as CDFIs compete more and more with bond financing, and it's hard to beat, you know, 30, 40 year debt, sometimes at attractive rates. CDFIs really do have to figure out what is it that they can contribute to this industry and how they can do that without unduly putting themselves at risk and putting the schools that they're serving at risk as well. So this is something to definitely watch. So Khalif and Joe also commented on risk in the industry, and they both had a similar focus, the charter industry's public image. Not going too far into it. Um, Well, you know, Betsy DeVos um, and her love of charters and I guess the liberal pushback or the progressive pushback on that. There was a recent New York Times article um, that we learned of last night that that basically meant that charters don't have a political home at this point. And, you know, not having a political home translates to, you know, support and more funding and, and um, uh, uh, just dollars. Exactly. Table? How do you keep a seat at the table? Exactly. So that's... I guess, immediate risk. Um, I'm not sure if it's the biggest risk right now, but um, definitely for more progressive charters that have a focus on providing opportunity for low-income students and people of color, that seems to be an immediate risk. And here's Joe. I think the biggest risk is obviously 
the conversation around charter schools, it's, it's tough. So you'll talk to someone and they will differentiate a charter school from a public school when they're the same thing. Uh, you'll talk to someone else and they'll start asking you questions about, well, what is the tuition to go to that charter school? Well, there is no tuition. So the, the general public, while they are becoming increasingly more informed on a variety of issues, and there's lots of reasons for that. A lot of it is, has to do with our you know, government and the way things are and the people who are in power and that have been in power. Um, the fact that they're becoming more informed is great. I don't know if they're becoming as well informed as they should be on the charter school issue because questions like that still persist. Absolutely. So once we can, as a you know country, get beyond uh, questions that are really basic like that, then mm-hmm. I think I think we'll be in a better spot. But that I think is the biggest risk because in in the mind of the public, it's never it's never going to be. Well, this school, let's call it a KIPP school, uh, had phenomenal results, but that's because they're a private school. We need to get to that point. And and if we can't get there through uh, clarity on, you know, the fact that charter schools are just a different form of public school, then that's going to be a problem for us well into the future. I really couldn't agree with Joe Moore. Um, I wrote a blog about this on High Impact's website a few months ago when we released our first state scan report with the Community Development Trust. The public's misconceptions about charter schools are a huge problem for the industry. Uh, I mean, there definitely are bad operators in the market. Some markets have lax authorizers that allow for bad operators to proliferate. But by and large, charter schools are filling in a real need for alternatives in the communities they serve. To me, the single biggest issue here, there's many small things. The fact that uh, some people think all charters are for profit, some think that they can, you know, pick and choose their students, all those things are issues. But to me, it goes back to the basics of, uh, on the finance side, charter schools were created without creating a new source of funding for them. So they rely on that per pupil revenue that would otherwise go to the, the local traditional public school. Um, and part of those funds, admittedly, you know, that's that's making it more difficult for traditional public schools to fund their fixed costs. So that creates a friction that really sets up the charter industry and the traditional public schools to have this adversarial relationship that really would not be there if there was some other funding or would certainly be be there to a lesser degree. And as Khalif mentions, the current administration's love of charter schools and other alternatives to traditional public schools is not necessarily helping our public image. Uh, in a lot of circles. Molly from Reinvestment Fund cites decreases in per-pupil funding as the biggest risk in the industry, and that can only increase that tension between charter schools and traditional public schools. Here's Molly on that topic. Not really something I've seen at the conference per se, but more of the schools that I'm working with these days on underwriting is just per-pupil funding in a lot of places has been flat or declining. Um, and for especially independent smaller schools that are not in rapid growth mode that don't have a super strong balance sheet or a CMO to help carry them in certain ways that's been a real challenge I I wouldn't say maybe I keep confusing risk and challenge but um, that's been a challenge that we've been seeing just schools and um, in Baltimore and Philadelphia and places that are trying to anticipate where per-people funding may go and how they're going to have to adjust. So those are, are some serious risks. Um, I think each of our commentators here really had some some value to add in those answers and things that everyone in the industry should be thinking about. 
But as always, I'd like to end on a positive note. So I asked each of our contributors to tell me about what really excites them about working in the industry. Um, I really think events like this, conferences are great to go to for so many reasons, but one of them is that it always re-energizes me. I always come back to the office feeling really excited about my work. So I hope you'll get that same excitement here when you hear what our contributors had to say. First up, Molly from Reinvestment Fund. The best part about my job is being able to visit schools and being at this conference just reminds me of the real important need to do that in our job, to get out of the office and really get excited by what's going on in the classroom. I was actually, during some downtime, making a list of the borrowers I want to visit just to be reinvigorated by what they're doing and also hearing from them some thoughts on some of the things that I'm learning about and listening to at this conference. Um, And I think now having children, too, it just makes that part of my job of seeing what's going on in the classroom like that much more real or very high stakes important when you're trying to you know decide which schools to invest in and that ultimate decision should be would I send my own child here Um, and so what is exciting is to actually get out and try to find those great schools to to support their growth and development and now Sajin from LIF Having done this for a little while now, I'm, I'm starting to see the fruits of our work, and I'm starting to see big things starting to happen. Uh, for instance, our organization, along with a number of other CDFIs and lenders, uh, supported three charters, uh, CMOs, in Camden to essentially revamp that entire market, where about 50% of students will be attending a charter school. And this is a really extremely poor performing uh, school district previously uh, and I'm really excited to see like w- how this will change Camden yeah. uh, and, and really serve the kids there who were not served before who were really left behind and it was, it, it's a shame so it, it's really exciting to see that change happening having to be a part of it but being a part of seeing that that uh, improve that school district approve so it's that's really cool um, other um, things that really excite me about my work is um, our organization has been really tying what we do into social justice and equity. You know, why are students, predominantly African American students, stuck in poor performing schools? Um, and thinking about our work differently through a different lens when you think about it through social justice and equity. Uh, one of the things we started doing in supporting our diverse by design charter schools. Uh, and these are schools that typically serve maybe fewer free and reduced lunch students than we had, than we had usually served. Um, let's say, you know, 40 or 50 percent uh, or even less. Uh, but they think about their work in terms of, you know, equity and serving low-income students in a diverse population. You know, we think that's important because, uh, as folks know, there's uh, a lot of segregation issues in our school districts, in our towns, in our communities. Uh, And if we can find ways to uh, reduce that uh, and provide diverse schools for kids, we really think that's important. Um, So that's something I'm really excited about doing and really excited about seeing that's growing in our industry. And finally, Joe from NJCC. So it's an interesting question for someone like me because the work we do at NJCC is more on the front end for the financing of the facility. And sometimes you work with a school that's got a couple of years on it, so you're not necessarily on the very front end, but you can come in midway. 
but what I always enjoy, of course, I enjoy the ribbon cuttings for the new facilities. Uh, of course, there's a lot of research that shows the higher quality facility, the better educational outcomes. But we tend to stay in touch with our schools, not just because New Jersey is a small state, but because we, you know, we're at the conferences and we try to have some thought leadership around uh, charter school facilities. Uh, so I always enjoy learning about the school's success well after the fact, well after we've gone in. So I, I, really, I really get excited by uh, learning, for example, that there are students at this one school we financed at, down the shore in New Jersey who had graduated from that school, went to very high-ranking high schools, and then went to high-ranking uh, colleges, and have now come back to work at that school again. Wow. It's yeah. really exciting. In fact, a young woman who spoke this morning at the general session had a similar story. I was very impressed with her. So that type of stuff excites me because that's how you build community. When, when people who have gone through a system graduate from a system, in this case a school, then go do something else, learn something else, and then come back and help rebuild the system. Mm-hmm. That's, that's very exciting. And I think charter schools have been around long enough now where we're starting to see that, and we're starting to yeah. see it around the country. So that's, that's awesome. So there you have it. That concludes our episode today. I want to thank Molly Mello, Khalif Davis, Joe Palazzolo, and Sajan Phillip for contributing and for their service to the industry. These are all great people to work with at great institutions. I'd really encourage you, if you have a need for financing or financing partners, reach out to them. Please visit our website at www.impactlenderspodcast.com for show notes, and be sure to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. I'm Peter Schaefing. Thanks for listening. This podcast is brought to you by High Impact Financial Analysis. We help mission-focused lenders build and maintain high-performing impact portfolios through our underwriting, portfolio analysis, and general consulting services. Find out more at www.highimpactanalysis.com and follow us on Twitter at High Impact FA. The views and opinions expressed on the Impact Lenders podcast are the speaker's own and do not necessarily represent the views of High Impact or other organizations. Until next time, thanks for listening.